From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Billy Ray, one of the biggest names in screenwriting. Incredibly excited to have him. Billy wrote The Hunger Games. He's rewriting the new Terminator movie, several other big tentpole studio movies. In addition, he's written Captain Phillips, Shattered Glass, and Breach, all true stories. Even his recent TV show, The Last Tycoon, is based on a Fitzgerald novel, which is inspired by the true story of Irving Falberg. I'm so jealous of this true story niche that Billy has carved out for himself. You know, I've been noodling on what my favorite true story films are. I think a personal top five are All the President's Men, Quiz Show, Moneyball, The Social Network, and Shattered Glass, which Billy wrote and directed. Curious to hear your thoughts. Um, It's a giant responsibility to dramatize even a moment in someone else's life, to put on screen forever their relationship with their loved ones, among other things. You know, think about the social network. Sorkin decided to make Mark Zuckerberg an anti-hero for 95% of the movie and a tragic hero for the final 5%. That was a decision that Sorkin made, and rightly or wrongly, that's probably how I'll always think of Mark Zuckerberg. It supersedes reality. Or how many people think follow the money was how Bob Woodward cracked Watergate. It's the key clue uttered by Deep Throat in All the President's Men. But that line was made up by the screenwriter William Goldman. The real Deep Throat never said follow the money. Pop culture depictions take on outsized importance in the way we think about history. You know, when I mention John Dillinger or Bonnie and Clyde or Billy the Kid, do you think of poor, dirty, unglamorous, sociopathic kids with bad teeth? No, you think of the glamorous, charismatic movie stars who played them. When you step back, it does seem a little nutty that we allow writers, who often only devote a few months or a year to a subject, to define it for millions forever. One of my favorite movies of 2017 is The Post. But there's a central problem with it. The New York Times was the first to publish the Pentagon Papers, not The Washington Post. It's one of the great free press stories in history. And while the film, The Post, acknowledges that, it does center on The Washington Post heroics. And you gotta think, with Steven Spielberg directing, with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep starring, from now on, people are gonna remember the publishing of the Pentagon Papers as the Washington Post success, not the New York Times. Without falsifying anything, they've rewritten history. I write a lot of true stories myself, writing one now about Jagger Hoover, another about Audrey Hepburn. I think a lot about advice from two great dramatists on this subject. David Mamet says, our job isn't to write accurately, it's to write convincingly. The line, follow the money, isn't historically accurate, but it serves the framework of William Goldman's story. Same with Mark Zuckerberg as an anti-hero, then a tragic hero. Not accurate, but convincing. The other advice is from Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the definitive fictionalized accounts of Mark Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, Congressman Charlie Wilson, baseball GM Billy Bean, the inventor of TV, Philo Farnsworth, and now Molly Bloom. Sorkin says screenwriters must write subjectively, that we should think of biopics not as photographs, but as paintings. Really tricky stuff. I can't wait to talk to Billy about it all. I fully expect not to be able to get a word in edgewise today, which I'm totally fine with. Billy talks about screenwriting like he's giving a masterclass. So grab some coffee, settle in. Here he is, Billy Ray. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Hi, Billy. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. So I want to start off by asking you a little bit about The Last Tycoon, which is the series you created for Amazon. Um, For anybody out there who hasn't seen it yet, the show stars Matt Bomer and Lily Collins and Kelsey Grammer. Uh, I guess, you know, first off, how did you first get connected to do an adaptation of the Fitzgerald novel? Uh, well, it actually started with my wife. Um, she met a producer named Josh Maurer who had the rights to the book, and he contacted me. And I had never done uh, TV, uh, or actually hadn't done in TV, TV in over 25 years, and and wasn't really looking to do TV, but it was Fitzgerald. 
Um, and to my great shame, I had never read The Last Tycoon, so I thought I should take a look at The Last Tycoon. So I read the, the book, the unfinished book, and just fell in love and, and saw an opportunity there to comment on the Hollywood and the America of today by telling this story that started in 1936, and it was just sort of irresistible to me. Are you a big Fitzgerald fan of his short stories or his other novels? Yes, uh, but but became more so after this because I I dove a little deeper into the canon and and you know he's just he's sort of a singular author for me. Yeah, no, for me too. Um, you know, I actually reread um, when I was uh, home over Thanksgiving. Uh, one of my favorite books, Crazy Sundays. Did you uh-huh. ever read that one about Fitzgerald's yes. time in Hollywood? Yes, I'm staring at it on my bookshelf right now. Oh, man, it's so good. So, I mean, why do you think Fitzgerald, one of the great novelists, one of the great writers of the 20th century, failed miserably in Hollywood? Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I don't think he ever understood the economy of, of screenplay language. Hmm. Um, I think... He came here with a, a pretty large chip on his shoulder, which uh, you know he had earned, um, because I think he had a sense of his own greatness as a writer, uh, but he did not understand that in Hollywood, uh, the writer does not have primacy. Uh, it's, it's a director's medium, and, um, and having done both, I can, I can understand that, right. uh, but he, he clearly didn't. Right. Um, and I think it must have been, frankly, pretty depressing to do what he did, which was occasionally in Los Angeles he would wander into a bookstore and say, do you have anything by F. Scott Fitzgerald? <laughs> and then right? he would be told, isn't he dead? Wow. Um, you know, you hear those stories about Fitzgerald, and, and he must have known how much talent he had and, and what he was capable of. Um, and he must have known that he was just one of those authors that was never going to be recognized in his own time for his greatness. Right. I mean, I think he was incredibly celebrated for, you know, having a few bestsellers, for defining the jazz age at that period. But you're right. He wasn't, The Great Gatsby was not being taught in every high school in America the way it was. That didn't start until the 50s. Right. Decades later. And uh, that must have been very, very difficult for him, particularly since um, in Hollywood, he would have regularly been in contact and in competition with people who were nowhere nearly near, nowhere near as talented as he was, right? Uh, that must have been enormously frustrating for him. When you read those stories, like in Crazy Sundays, about um, you know how all the writers were uh, put together, and they, you know, uh, guys like Irving Thalberg had you know four or five writers working at the same time on different right. drafts of the same project, and right. they were all going to lunch together. Does that? I mean, how do you feel about that? Can you imagine having worked in that system if you had come along, you know, half a century before you did? I think I would have had the same frustrations that Fitzgerald had, yeah. and and also coupled with the fact that you know there was a lot of drinking, and and um, and he didn't handle that terribly well, and he had the personal dramas going on with Zelda. Right. Um, it, it was sort of a perfect storm for how to flame out in Hollywood. Um, you know, this is. Here's the thing that, that sort of attracted me to, to telling this story, and I should just sort of state for the record that um, working on Tycoon is by far the most fun I've ever had in my career. Really? By far the best working experience I've ever had in my life. Um, even the hard days were, were pure bliss. And um, You think that has to do with the fact that it was TV rather than features? I think it has to do with the fact that it was TV, um, but I think it, it has more to do with what the material was uh, that it was Fitzgerald, um, that it was a story that I truly believe, this is going to sound so pretentious, so forgive me. Hey, we're at Yale, it's okay. Okay, uh, that I was born to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really had a very strong sense as I was working on the show that every experience in my career had existed to prepare me for this. Wow. Um, every up, every down, every bump, every bruise had been there to get me more ready to tell the story of Monroe Star. So, so throw all that in, and, and um, it's a pretty incredible experience. Then top it off with the fact that, you know, coming off of uh, a career in, in features, which are also wonderful in their own way, to be able to come to the lot on a given day and touch eight episodes in a single day, um, you know, to be writing one and rewriting another and casting a third and shooting a fourth and scoring a fifth. I mean, you sort of get the idea. 
where you're picking costumes for episode eight um, while you're mixing episode six. You know, it's just it's incredibly stimulating, and um, it, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. But but getting back to uh, to Fitzgerald, all these elements conspire um, to to create enormous frustration for him. Right. And literally, it killed him. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it's a funny thing. It's, you know, a few of his contemporaries, guys like Faulkner, were also going to Hollywood, but they didn't seem to care about it. You know, they knew that they're, they were uh, novelists first, and they went to Hollywood to make some money. Fitzgerald actually seemed to love movies, and he wanted this to work. There's um, no question he wanted it to work, and he had an incredible uh, romance with movies, and you can see it in the book. Um, it's so interesting and it's something that we tried really hard to capture in the show, and I believe we were successful in this regard, the idea that movies are both the solution and the problem at the same time. Hmm. Um, and, and, and that's something that the show is very much about, and it's also something that, that the book is about. It comes through so clearly. You know, he had a true admiration for Thalberg, and you can see it in every page. And there were things about Thalberg that he, qualities that Thalberg had that Fitzgerald knew he would never have. And, and that always makes for great writing. You know, when, when Thalberg sat him down famously in uh, the commissary one day and told him a story about, imagine that you're in charge of building a railroad track and there's a mountain in front of you. And the crew is waiting to decide, are you planning to go through the mountain or around the mountain to the right or around the mountain to the left? And you have to make a decision. You may not be sure you're right, but you have to, you have to communicate that you are right. And you have to say, this is how we're doing it. This is how we are going to deal with this mountain. And the crew is going to follow you. And you may know in your heart that you're not sure, but the crew needs to believe that you are sure. And if they do believe that you're sure, you're going to get, you're going to get the best work out of that crew. He said, that's what it is to run a studio. And, and that was how uh, Fitzgerald hooked an entire character, which was Monroe Starr. Uh-huh. And it was a quality that Fitzgerald knew that he himself did not have. You can, you, know, you can learn so much by reading the letters that Fitzgerald wrote to various editors, even uh, as he was describing the work he was going to be doing in The Last Tycoon. And there was a certain pleading quality to it about what he was planning to do and, and needing advances and how, what he thought the book would achieve. And, and, um, and you can see in the letters, he said, you know, I really am a good writer. <laughs> and, you know, it's amazing that Fitzgerald was reduced to having to say that, but he was. Right. Um, and, and Thalberg, in his own right, is such a fascinating figure. I mean, I love that, that he's sort of the stand-in for Fitzgerald in many ways in The Last Tycoon, but I remember reading Thalberg's uh, biography after, after reading Fitzgerald's novel and just loving it. And I, even the quote you just gave, Thalberg must have said that when he was in his late 20s. That's right. Which is incredible to have that kind of um, you know, understanding of his own power uh, at that young That's age. That's right. But, but the truth is, if you are ever in any kind of leadership position, and it's presumptuous to say that, you know, directing a movie or directing a pilot is that, because it it's, it's, doesn't have the scope of what Thalberg was doing. But it is a leadership position, and I can tell you he's absolutely right. He's, he's absolutely right. If, if you want to lead, there are a couple precepts that you have to understand. The first is that you have to duck the credit for everything that goes right and take the blame for everything that goes wrong. That's a real biggie in any kind of leadership position. And, and by that I mean if somebody compliments me on anything that I've done, I will immediately deflect the compliment. Oh, my cast is amazing. Oh, my crew is just killing it. And if something goes wrong on a set, if, if a, a, a light stand falls 100 feet from me, I will raise my hand and say that is my fault. I, I did not position you so that that would have been impossible. That is my fault. If something goes wrong with someone's performance, it's my fault. And when you do that, you, you earn the loyalty of your cast and your crew. They find out that you're not some, you know, credit-hoovering asshole. Right. Um, and, they also, and they also learn that if they do great work, they're going to get the strokes for it, not you. Right. And it makes everybody work harder. It's also, by the way, the right thing to do. Um, but that's a biggie. The other is that 
if you're going to lead, you have to ask a lot of questions, learn as much as you can, never act like you know something that you don't know, but once you make a decision, you commit to it. And you say to the crew, this is the right thing to do, and we're gonna, this is how we're going to take that hill. And, and then everybody starts pulling on the same side of the rope. Um, you hustle harder than anybody else, and then you get there. And, and that was so not who Fitzgerald was. He was, uh, he was born to write inside of a silo, and, and he did with you know, tremendous effect. Um, but that is not how things work in Hollywood. Um, it is, this sort of circles back to your original question about why he failed there, here. Um, it is the most collaborative uh, medium in the world, and if you can't be a team player, uh, you are going to flame out uh, in one stage or another. And I, I, I don't think he ever totally grasped that idea. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you're probably right because he's so he came from it from the mindset of a novelist where you have complete control over That's your it. own work. That's it. And nobody has complete control um, out here. Right. The most celebrated director in the world still has to get everybody around him or her to cooperate. Right. Um, the leadership skills that you were talking about, did mm -hmm. you think, did you learn that sort of, um, I mean, this is your first show. You've been directing movies for a while. Yep. Um, did you uh, learn that when you were directing your first movie? Did you talk to, um, did you have mentors that helped guide you through I it? I had a million mentors. I, I took classes. Um, I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. Uh, you know, when I was going to direct for the first time, a little movie called Shattered Glass, which was about uh, uh, the New Republic magazine, which I uh, wrote and directed in 2002. Um, before I went to go do that, I cold called a number of first-time writer-directors, and I just said, hi, I'm Billy Ray, and I'm about to direct for the first time. Can I take you to lunch and ask you some questions? And These are people you're, you were just fans of? Yeah, uh, it was uh, David Goyer sure. and uh, Brian Helgeland wow. and Ed Solomon. Um, they all had a reputation for being nice guys, and they all proved it uh, by uh, agreeing to sit down with me when, you know, they didn't know me or owe me anything. Right. And, you know, you sit down with a pad of paper and a pen, and you take notes like a journalist, and you learn. And then I called all of the producers uh, for whom I had written as a screenwriter and took them all to lunch, too, and said, okay, uh, you've worked with first-time directors before. Where are the landmines? Huh. And you learn that. And then I said to each of them, what about me as a first-time director would concern you? And, of course, you hope they're going to say, nothing. You're, you're going to be awesome. Uh, but one or two of them said, well, this would concern me. And, and one in particular said, you belabor the point. Hmm. And I said, you mean as a writer or as a person? He said, both. <laughs> I made a note to myself, don't belabor the point. Um, and were you actually able to take that to heart? Did you, you change your ways? Wow. My fear of failure is so much greater than my need for someone to kiss my butt mm -hmm. that it drives me. In other words, you know, when I hand in a script to anybody, of course what I'm hoping they'll say is this is perfect, don't change a word. But if they give me notes, I execute the notes because my ego definitely takes a back seat to my desire to succeed. And my ego is not going to help me if it's protecting me from smart notes. Right. And that's as a writer, as a director, as a producer, or as a person. Um, Greta Gerwig is on the um, sort of interview circuit right now with her first movie. And mm -hmm. I've, I've heard in a couple of interviews talk about her doing the exact same thing, that she called up directors that she really admires and asked advice, you know, what advice would you give to a first-time director? That's um, right. That, I mean, that, that makes all sorts of sense. Um, uh, if Were these people, you know, Brian Hugland, uh, these guys that you reached out to, did you have the same agent? Uh, was it you just contacted no, them through friends of friends? No, they were all people, you know, uh, with whom I had some sort of connection. Uh -huh. You know, a producer that we had both worked for, that kind of thing. And what about when you uh, ventured into TV? Did you talk to showrunners? you do the same thing? No, I didn't because... Well, actually, that's not true. That's not true. I took David Benioff to lunch um, mm -hmm. wow. and, and asked him a million questions. Um, but in this case, I was partnered with a guy named Chris Kaiser mm -hmm. who had run, you know, five or six shows 
before me, um, who was also a very close friend, and I asked him to partner with me uh, on Tycoon after I'd written the Bible for the show, which you know laid out uh, five seasons of story. Um, wow. And so, you know, the advice I was getting was from my partner. I was sort of learning on the job from him, and and he was handling all sorts of things that I didn't know how to handle. Um, and so, hold on, you wrote that Bible for for stories for five seasons yep. without a writer's room. You just sort of yeah. you did that on your own. Well, the way that came about was um, after I had read the novel and decided I wanted to do it, I went in to meet with uh, the folks at Sony TV because they actually owned the rights to the novel. And I expressed my interest in doing it. And and, um, and then I thought, if we're going to go pitch this, I'm an unknown commodity in television, so I better be ready. I better know what I'm talking about. So I went into my office to try to throw some notes together um, and it wound up just being such a wonderful, blissful period that I would come into my office at 8 o'clock in the morning and look up, and it would be 6 o'clock at night, and I wouldn't know where the day had gone. I had just been kind of riffing on the idea of the last tycoon. That's a great feeling. And, you know, screenplays have been very, very good to me, but there's something about the forced economy of 110 pages versus, oh, I have five years to arc this character. Uh, it was... It was just a wonderful experience. So what came out of it was, which was supposed to be just notes to get ready for a studio pitch. I mean, a, a network pitch wound up being 120 pages and five seasons of, of story. And by the time, you know, we were ready to go pitch, I, I was completely versed in that world and knew the story that we were telling. And, and, and it made it, a much better pitch. Wow. So this is, Sony didn't commission a Bible from you. They no. just, they gave you the title and as a team, you were going to go out and pitch this to networks and you just took it upon yourself to figure yeah. out the series. But I, I have a tendency um, to do that sort of thing. There's a, there's a line that Monroe Starr says in the pilot of Tycoon. He says, I'm not talented enough to be unprepared. And, um, and that is a direct <laughs> quote from me. I mean, that's something I've been saying about myself for a long time. And I believe it to be true. Um, you know, I, I was sort of, I was an okay student in high school and in college uh, in classes that inspired me. I did very, very well. And in classes that didn't, I sort of did enough not to embarrass myself, but certainly nothing spectacular. Were you a writing major? English major? I was a motion picture television major at UCLA. Oh, there you go. And, um, and then when I got out of school, and saw how hard it was going to be to actually make a living in show business, something just clicked in a way that it had never clicked for me in school, um, where I just realized I'm going to have to outwork everybody. I'm, I'm going to just flat, have to flat out out-hustle everybody to get what I want. And I've been doing it ever since. Um, that feeling of there are so many variables in in the entertainment industry that will directly impact your ability to make a living uh, over which you have no control. Right. Like you have no control over the health of the economy. You have no control over the health of our business. You have no control over how, what's going to happen if the DVD market flatlines, as it did, or the explosion of all these streaming services. No control over any of that. No control over whether superhero movies are in or out. The one variable over which you have any control is your willingness to work hard. And so you better maximize that variable. I love that. Um, you know, I think sometimes um, I get nervous about doing that simply because investing so much time and energy into one project when the overwhelming likelihood for every individual project mm -hmm. uh, is that it's not going to go. Right. Uh, so I feel like I, at all times I need to have seven, eight, ten projects going. And if I ever get too close, if I ever feel like one of them is really my baby and I'm in love with it, it's just a recipe for heartache. Um, well, I understand that. And I also understand that I'm in a slightly different position sure. because I can afford, uh, and it's going to sound tacky and I don't mean it to, but I can afford to invest the sweat equity in something like a 120 page Bible and then find out that we didn't sell it. Emotionally, and, and I'm not going to miss a meal. And, and I'm, I'm lucky because I've been doing this long enough and I've built up enough of a career and enough of a nest egg that I can, I can take a flyer on that 
Um, but what about emotionally? You, after putting all that um, energy and inspiration into a, the 120 pages, if it didn't go, huh? that wouldn't be too sort of crushing emotionally for you? No, it would have been upsetting. It would have bothered me. And uh, a day later, I would have been working on something else. Um, there's just, there's, there's no other way to do it for me. I, I, I don't, I've never sold anything without investing that kind of sweat equity into it. That's right. Um, and there have been plenty of times that I've walked into studios that really like me, that really want to be in business with me, that have said no, because what I was selling was something they didn't want. Right. Um, and, and there are always things that I put that level of work into. You know, there, there's a, a, a thing that I just wrote for uh, a company called Participant, uh, which is something that I've been chasing for 22 years. <laughs> Um, that I've been working on and off on for 22 years. And it finally has come together. And now it's a script that they've paid me to write, and now it's out to directors. And, you know, persistence does pay off. This is very much a last laugh business. And what I've found was in those moments where you have really, really bet it all on something and it doesn't sell, um, yes, of course, it's it's hugely disappointing um, and frustrating and angering and makes you doubt whether or not you can trust your own instincts about where you should be putting your time and your energy. But the fact is that uh, there's no way to get the best work out of yourself without investing in that way. Um, now, the one caveat to that is uh, I have never poured any greater amount of myself into anything than I did into the first season of The Last Tycoon. And we were making the show at Amazon for the person who was then the head of Amazon uh, named Roy Price, uh, who always hated the show and never really understood what it was we were trying to do. Um, and, and seven days after we launched, uh, which was July 28th, he canceled us. And um, that was, of course, devastating. Roy Price was then subsequently fired for all sorts of sexual harassment right. stuff. Uh, but by then, the ship had sailed. We were, we were a canceled show, and we had that stigma attached to us. And I will say that of all the things in my career, by far, by far, the hardest to get over was that one. And I'm still in the middle of it. I mean, we, we got the news actually uh, at some point in early September, uh, because it was five weeks after he canceled the show that he actually told us that he had canceled the show. <laughs> um, and I can tell you that I'm still not over it, not even close to over it. Um, I've, I've since laid out the entire season two in case we can sell it somewhere else. You did that after? Well, after. Wow. Um, I've written the first three episodes of season two Wow. since then. Um, I've, I've had meetings at several other networks about it. I've gone back to Amazon four times to beg them to reconsider because there's now a, a new administration there. Um, the emotionally healthy thing to do would certainly be to accept it <laughs> and move on. Um, and everyone around me, even people who love the show as they were working on it, accepted it and moved on and <laughs> sort of got on with their lives. And I know that it would be the right thing to do, but there's a part of me that believes that if I ever get to that place emotionally where I have accepted it, I will stop fighting for the show. And I don't ever want to stop fighting for the show. It just means too much to me. I care too much about it. I believe in it uh, too deeply. Wow. So, and, uh, you know, I, as recently as last night, I was writing emails to the, the new head of programming at uh, at Amazon, begging her to reconsider. Amazing. I mean that, and I assume Amazon is the studio also, so it makes. No, it the studio was Sony. So then, oh right, I'm sorry. Of course, Sony. So Sony could take it out elsewhere. Um, yes, they can, but it's very, very difficult to get another network sure. to program someone else's canceled show. Right. It just has a, a, a uh, an attachment to it that is not positive, and um, and we were not an inexpensive show. Right. So on top of everything else, you are looking at something that's a, a, a large investment. But, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, um, you know, you talking about your persistence being one of the keys to your success. I mean, a project that you've been working on for 22 years is finally happening. How many people actually keep 
pushing the boulder up the hill for 22 years. A lot of um, people I just imagine like, a lot of us do it. You think so? Um, you know, I, I, here's one thing I can tell you for sure. Go back and look at uh, every acceptance speech by every screenwriter. There are two of them per year at the Academy Awards. Every writer who gets up there says the same thing. This took 10 years, and I had to cut off my arm, and I had to cut <laughs> right. off my leg, and oh my God, I lost my house. It's the same story every year. Nobody ever gets up there and says, wow, was this easy. Right. I, I wrote one draft. We got a director. We got a star. We had no notes. We just went on. Everybody loved each other. And now I get this. Oh my God. What a blessing. It just, you just never hear that. Right. Always a bloodletting. The system is designed to prevent any other eventuality. So... You know, if you want to be in a grown-up game like this, this is how it goes. Right. Uh, a close friend, uh, Jesse Stern, who's a great TV writer, um, he always says that he thinks Hollywood is the, a war of attrition. That if you oh, have, question. yeah, if you have the the sort of requisite amount of talent, that it's really about not leaving. It's about persistence and continuing to push. And I, it, yeah, it, I think there's a lot of truth. A hundred percent true. And as I said, it is a last laugh business. Right. The business will just kick you in the head repeatedly. But if you hang in there, the business's leg gets tired or it just decides to go kick someone else and you're still standing. Right. Um, all right, we've been talking so much about The Last Tycoon. I want to play a clip from it, let people hear it. Um, Thank you. So let's go ahead and play that clip and then um, I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about writing it and anything sure. you want to say from a craft perspective. So sure. let's play that. Hey, Sternberg. You resent me, that's fine, but why drag my family into it? You made my daughter a producer? Why don't you just shove a hot poker up my ass? Now she'll never straighten out. She's talented, Pat. Must be in her genes. You stay out of her genes, you hear me? I'm the king here. And what I say doesn't live, dies. Maybe. But I'm making her movie. Oh, yeah? With whose money? Yours. Courtesy of that blank check. I'm cashing it. Unless I can't trust you after all. Sometimes I think I'm actually the one with scruples. The movie's the baby, Pat. Fuck the baby. That's great. So that was Kelsey Grammer and Matt Bomer. Um, Kelsey Grammer is sort of um, the fictionalized Louis B. Mayer type figure who runs the studio. Well, we based him more on Harry Cohn. Oh, is that right? Okay. Um, and so he's talking to his underling, the boy genius of Hollywood, based on the sort of Irving Thalberg figure, but also very much a stand-in for Fitzgerald, played by Matt Bomer. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, about that scene, about writing that scene? That's from the pilot, um, you know, roughly 10 minutes from the end of the show. Uh, yeah, I think it's a little less than that. It's, it's the uh, second to last scene in the, in okay. the pilot. Um, so much of the show is about the relationship between those two men, Pat Brady and Monroe Starr, both giants in their own way, uh, could not be more diametrically opposed, uh, in the way they approach things and in the way they approach movies and in what they believe movies ought to be. They have a very, very complicated personal relationship because uh, Brady's daughter, Celia, is madly in love with Monroe, so there's this triangle that's going on, um, and stars having uh, an affair with Brady's wife. So there's, there's a lot happening and a lot of connections there. Of course, Brady doesn't know about that part. Um, and then you throw into the mix the uh, the alchemy of those two actors, of, of Matt Bomer and Kelsey Grammer, who are both, I think, just so great in those parts. Um, you know, it's funny, as I listen to it, I'm struck once again by what for me is, is the, the source of pain in, in having the show canceled is that I miss those characters. I miss spending time with Monroe and Pat and all of them. Uh, Largely because of the way they were brought to life by those actors, but also just because the sheer joy of, of writing for them. The, the rhythm of that show was something that I just loved doing. Um, anyway, that, that happens to be one of, the, one of my favorite scenes from the pilot. I thought it was great. I mean, the, the power dynamic, the, the way that, um, you know, uh, Kelsey Grammer comes in, just uh, the Harry Cohen figure, just screaming and, and uh, right. furious. And then Matt Bomer completely changes the power dynamic halfway through. Um, right. And it's a dance that they do for, you know, the, certainly the entire pilot and I imagine the entire first season. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's incredibly well written. Thank you. Um, 
so I wanted to um, switch gears a little bit and ask you a little bit about um, Shattered Glass, your first movie, which you mentioned. Sure. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. Oh, thank uh, you. I love that movie. My my sister is a psychology professor, and she actually shows the uh, movie every year to her personality uh, students. Oh, wow. Where did she um, teach? She teaches at the University of British Columbia. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and, and they really respond to it, and they love it. You no, know, I'm told it's taught in several journalism classes, too, which makes me really happy. Which is, that's amazing. As sort of a cautionary tale? I would hope so. Jeez. It certainly isn't a how-to. Right, so for those who haven't seen it, you know, Billy wrote and directed the film. It was the first film he directed. It stars Hayden Christensen, Peter Sarsgaard, Chloe Sevigny, and it tells the true story of Stephen Glass, who wrote for The New Republic, uh, but was found to have made up most of his stories, passing them off as journalism, going to great lengths to cover his tracks. Um, so how did that movie first come to you? Well, it started as an article in Vanity Fair, uh, written by the great journalist Buzz Bissinger. And I was hired to write it for HBO. Um, and while I was writing it, the entire administration uh, that had hired me was fired. So by the time I handed in the script, there was a new administration in place at HBO, and, and they had no interest in the project. Um, I, I'm convinced, by the way, that that's why I started writing so fast. It's because I, I want to make sure in the future that the people who hire me are still in their yeah. jobs by the time I turn the script in. But here it is. It happened again on Amazon, but maybe yeah. for the best this time. Again. So um, anyway, we, we handed it in to HBO. They weren't interested in it, and it sat there for two years. And... By then, I had decided I was ready to try to direct. Um, and I, by the way, I was never a fan of writers who run around whining about wanting to be directors. I always found that was pretty annoying, and I didn't want to be that person. Um, but by this point in my career, I was almost 40, and I had decided it was time to find out if I could do that job. And I, there were certain kinds of movies that I knew were a mistake for me. Um, I didn't want to have a movie... I didn't want to make my first movie something that had car chases or gunplay or things blowing up or excessive nudity, all the genre stuff that I knew I just didn't know how to do. Um, but Shattered Glass would just be a question of can you get performance, can you establish tone, um, and, and those are the things that the movie would be sort of hanging its hat on. I mean, I would think it's almost harder. I mean, you, you created, which, which I imagine is an incredibly high bar as a director, having never directed, you created an incredible amount of tension from people in rooms talking, people in offices talking. Well, here's the thing, okay? On, uh, across the top of uh, my computer monitor at home, I'm actually staring at it right now, in big block letters it says, what is the simple emotional journey? If you can uh, go back and look at your top ten, of, of greatest movies of all time for you, they all have at their core a simple emotional journey, or they wouldn't be one of your favorite movies. Um, something that made you feel, as opposed to something that made you think. Um, and it could be as simple as There's No Place Like Home. It could be Love Conquers All. It, you know, these are simple ideas, but they're emotional. They make you feel. Screenwriting is an intellectual exercise that's designed to elicit an emotional response. If I write a script and I give it to people and they say, this is the smartest thing you've ever written, I know I have failed. Because they're not responding in emotional terms. If they're responding by saying, I love this, oh my God, I, I was so scared, I can't believe you killed that guy, I'm so sad, those kinds of expressions, I know they're reacting with their guts, I know I have succeeded. Hmm. Um, I so, as, as complex an intellectual atmosphere as shattered glass is, and it is all those things. At its core, it had a very emotional idea in it, which was what happens if the least popular kid in high school has to take down the most popular kid in high school. That's hmm. what Shattered Glass is. Chuck Lane is the guy that nobody likes at the magazine. Stephen Glass is the guy that everybody likes at the magazine. He's the rock star. And that dynamic is the movie. That's the emotional pulse of that movie. And so... To me, that's better than a car chase. Uh, it's more complex, it's more satisfying, it's more identifiable. More people have had that experience on one end or the other than have had you know, explosions and gun chases. That's so interesting to hear you talk about it. Um, you know, I've, I've seen the movie several times, but it wasn't until I watched it recently that I really realized 
uh, what a great arc you gave Chuck Lane that he he is our hero. This is the editor that brings down Billy. And you know, you you take great pains to um, while while we're all sort of focusing on um, on sorry on Stephen. Um, we're watching Chuck rise from a writer to an editor. We're seeing glimpses of, of his family, um, and then he's the one who takes it upon himself uh, to out Stephen for his. And, and that's the true story. That's, that's and what actually so, happened while Stephen was. Um, conning everybody else, uh, he never really conned Chuck, and and it fell to Chuck at the at the nadir of his popularity to have to take this guy down. And, and did you realize right away that that the Chuck arc was going to be sort of central to your story? Well, there's a sleight of hand involved in the uh, in the structure of Shattered Glass that I wouldn't recommend to inexperienced writers, because the first half of the movie sets up one protagonist. The second right. half of the movie launches another protagonist. Right. It's such, it's such strange, interesting architecture that it, yeah, it took me a couple of years. There was to no that. other way to tell that story that I could think of. Um, you couldn't have Stephen Glass be the point of the movie all the way through, because you would just want to kill yourself at the end, getting so right. invested in him. You had to have some investment in Chuck, and then he had to take over the movie. And, and we were looking, when we, uh, when we went to go shoot the movie, we were looking for a way to express that idea uh, visually, how you could use the camera to do that. Um, you know, w there's, a, there's a point exactly halfway through that movie where Chuck Lane sort of takes control. And, and in, in thematic terms, truth starts to win. Is that the Bethesda scene? When he no, it's actually Stephen right before to... then. It's, it's when they have the conference call with... Uh, with Forbes Digital, and right. uh, and 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 Chuck finally snaps. Give him the yep, number. Even Stephen. give him the number. And anyway, so my DP Mandy Walker, who's awfully brilliant, had this idea that the way to express that dividing line, that demarcation point in the movie, was in the first half of the movie. Whenever you're uh, in the New Republic offices, uh, the camera was handheld. And from that moment forward, whenever you're in the New Republic offices, the camera's always on sticks. It's stable. Hmm. And it's because truth is taking over and, 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 and starting to dig some roots down so that the movie feels less shaky. And um, that's one of those things, I, I don't know how many Q&As I've done about uh, Shadow Glass, but it's at least a couple hundred. And no one's ever asked me about it, which means to me that it hmm. worked. Because, uh, yes, I because no one's right. noticed it, and I don't want them noticing the directorial style while they're watching the movie. I just want them feeling. No, but it, it does completely get through to us. It's so interesting. Um, and uh, I also love, and I think probably part of why my sister teaches it to, in a psychology class, you know, that you never give us an explanation for why Stephen committed this giant fraud. You know, was he a sociopath? Was he an extreme narcissist? Was it imposter syndrome? You, you never let the, you let the viewer decide for himself. Well, you know, um, uh, the next movie I directed after that is this movie called Breach with Cooper. Yeah, where you do the Ryan same thing. Ryan Phillippe works the exact same thing, except we actually say it in Breach, where Ryan Phillippe actually says the why doesn't matter, does it? And, and for me, the why doesn't matter. Um, our actions define us. We are what we do. And at the end of the day, uh, you could spend a lot of time figuring out why someone like Donald Trump does what he does. And, and a lot of people make a very good living trying to figure that out. Ultimately, does it matter? He just behaves in this abhorrent way. Um, does the why matter? Not to me. Um, and that's how I felt about uh, those characters. Um, I had a pretty good sense of what the pressures were on Stephen Glass as he was growing up. Uh, I felt a lot of the same ones. I, I don't think there's a big difference between growing up in, in Highland Park, Illinois, and growing up in Encino, California. Um, it's that same, uh, particularly in a, in a Jewish household, that you know, the pressure on education and um, that feeling that you need to succeed and that you are sort of carrying the flag for your family at all times, um, that can be a very, very healthy thing. That can drive people to do some wonderful work. Um, with a few minor tweaks, it can be a very unhealthy thing, and clearly for Stephen, it was. Right, right. So th there are hints in Shattered Glass that right, uh, uh, Stephen is driven at, at, in, in a large sense by his need to be liked by, his, by the other writers in the Republic, by the editors. 
And in in Breach, which you you briefly mentioned, the story of Robert Hansen, the the FBI turncoat who was actually um, you know spying for the Russians, you give a sense that you know money was part of it. Um, you know there are a few other indications, but uh, of of why he did this. But the fact that you let the viewer decide for themselves instead of just spoon feeding them, I, I really do think it just makes the movie so much more interesting for us to you know we finish it and we want to talk to all of our friends about you know their different motivations and, I, and our I own theories. That. I mean, look, the, the truth is. If I had a simple answer, I'd be happy to give it. Um, there isn't a simple answer with people like that. Um, you know, these are educated people behaving badly. I've sort of made a career out of telling their stories. Um, you know, I think so much of, of the things that I am attracted to are about integrity or the lack of integrity. Um, they're about moral ambiguity giving way to, you know, sort of moral clarity, and then what do we do about it once we realize what the right thing to do is? Um, these are not simple ideas. They are, they are complex. Human beings are, are mistake-making creatures. We are very idiosyncratic, and we have all, and self-contradictory in a lot of ways. Um, you know, Robert Hansen had these hugely patriotic impulses, and yet he was a traitor. He had these hugely uh, religious, moralistic impulses, and yet he was uh, a perversion of that in a million different ways. Um, I, I find that really interesting, and I think it would be arrogant to say, oh, no, it was just this that made him behave the way he did. You know, we are all a collection of a million different uh, imprints. Some stick, some don't. And some impact us in profound ways and some don't. You know, there's a, a, there's a line about that in Equus by Peter Schaffer, which is one of my favorite plays ever. I just think it's, it's just so magnificent. But one of the things that uh, the character, uh, Dysart, who's the, the psychiatrist in it, as he's trying to assess this one uh, patient, Alan Strang, who's done this horrible thing. He's blinded six horses. And, and Dysart is in this soliloquy saying... A baby is introduced into the world, and there are all these uh, stimuli thrown at it, and it, it, you know, it sniffs, and it strokes, and it chooses, and some will impact it, and some will not. And I, even as a psychiatrist, I can't say why. Hmm. I, I cannot tell you why that happens. And um, I don't know, is writing that different from psychiatry? You're both trying to explain uh, and diagnose human behavior. And it's an imprecise science. Hmm. But these those kinds of character studies um, that go um, as as deep as you're talking about, you know, we saw that in the '70s with the paranoid thrillers, which I love so sure. much. And now today, it feels like you know you and Tony Gilroy and maybe just a couple of other people are still able to do that. But for the most part, those sort of psychological profiles are seen only on TV. Um, they're not seeing um, the movies anymore. Well, I appreciate that. And I think there, there are a lot of us out there that are, that are doing that kind of work. Um, it's, the business has changed. The feature business has yeah. changed so profoundly that it's tougher to get that work uh, produced and, and tougher still to get the work seen. Is that part of why you've gone to TV? Well, I was sort of the last feature writer in the world to get the memo about right. how the better work was being done in TV. I, I think that... Um, that the feature business has surrendered a certain amount of ground to television. I think at a, at a certain point, the feature business looked up and said, okay, Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Downton Abbey, The Wire, etc. This is the sort of ground that really does need to be explored over years and chapters. And TV just does it better than we do it. So let them have it. And we'll just make superhero movies and, and, and big comedies. And um, I think that's a shame. Uh, I think it's borderline criminal. I think it's going to wind up being extremely hurtful to, uh, to the business uh, in general. I don't think it's a sustainable business model because I just don't think there are that many su superheroes out there. And I don't think um, you can threaten the existence of the planet that many times before the audience says, okay, right, so the planet's going to blow up, now what? Um, but that's not my call. Uh, what, I, what I knew was 
um, that for our particular story, The Last Tycoon, it had already been made as a feature in the 70s by some very, very talented people, and they had swung and missed. Um, I think there's so much story there that uh, it demanded to be a series. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, right? I think it was, it was Elliot Kazan who directed it, and was it Harold Pinter who wrote it? I believe so. That's a, and, I mean, and De Niro. Or, and De Niro. And Monroe Star. Right. I mean, that's such a dream team, but you're right. The movie doesn't quite work. Um, one more class, uh, question about these true stories that you write. Um, huh? I'm really curious when it's something that the audience mostly knows about when, you know, Shattered Glass or Breach or even Captain Phillips, where, you know, Tom Hanks plays the captain of a cargo ship held hostage by Somali pirates. How do you deal with the fact that, that so much of your audience already knows how it ends? How do you, how do you manage to keep them in suspense when we already know the ending? Well, there are some great templates, uh, that have been put in front of me. Uh, that give me courage. Uh, everyone certainly knew the ending of All the President's Men, but they went to see it anyway because it was the behind-the-scenes story. And, you know, you knew how JFK was going to end, but that's one of the greatest movies ever, uh, a, a, an incredibly high level of craft. So the fact that the audience knows the ending or what they think is the ending coming in is not so much the issue. Um, I was so eager to do Captain Phillips for a number of reasons. But the biggest was you never, ever get offered a true story that lays out like an action movie. Real life just doesn't do that. Um, but here was a case where the true story of Captain Phillips had all the beats of an action movie that were true and had this enormous breadth and this incredibly interesting politics to it. Uh, I, that was a job I wanted very badly. I, I'm happily at a place in my career where generally when people offer me something, I get it exclusively, at least for a weekend. Um, that's how it worked on Hunger Games, where you know they send you the book on a Friday, and by Monday you either raise your hand or you don't. And if you don't, they go out to somebody else. But you have that weekend by yourself to evaluate it. You're not competing with anybody. And I've, I've worked very hard to get to that place in my career. But Captain Phillips was not that way. Captain Phillips was going to be an open assignment that a lot of writers were going to chase, and, they, and, and the studio did not believe they needed to offer it to me or to anybody in order to attract the kind of writers that they wanted. So it was going to be a beauty pageant. But as I said, knowing the story, and, and like everyone else, having watched the story on CNN as it unfolded, um, I wanted it badly. So I, I sat down over the weekend, because uh, I was going to have a pitch meeting at, uh, at the studio, which was also Sony, and I thought, okay, what's this movie really about, and how does this movie really end, and where's the emotional heartbeat of the movie? And I thought, you know, if you turn off the sound and just watch what happens in the story, you could say, you could reduce it to, this is a movie about a white guy who's kidnapped by four black guys, and three of them get their heads blown off. That's not a movie that interests me on any level. Um, and that's not a movie that I think responsibly I should be telling. So I thought, okay, what else is in this movie that actually makes it the thing that I want to talk about? And I realized that there was actually a, a, a very profound movie in there that focused on something else. So when I went into Sony, I don't know what the other writers went in there pitching, but when I went in there, I said, this is a story about leadership. This is a story about two captains who wake up on opposite sides of the globe, on opposite sides of the globe, they get dressed for work, they say goodbye to their families, and they go do their jobs. And their jobs are going to put them on a collision course because one is a Somali pirate and one is uh, the captain of a cargo ship. And we are going to see when these two captains come in to conflict with one another how they're going to change one another, how they're going to impact one another. One is going to do anything in his power to protect his crew, and the other is going to sacrifice his crew to protect himself. And that's the difference between these two captains. That was the story that interested me. And that got me the job. Mm. When you go in and uh, you're one of many pitching for a story, uh, pitching for an assignment, how much do you give them? Um, do you give Well, like in that case, that's all I gave them. I, I gave them uh, just that, sort of the thematic idea of the movie. Interesting. You know, when you, there's a... There's an actual rule in the, uh, in the minimum basic agreement between the Writers Guild and right. the uh, Association of Motion Picture Television Producers 
um, the rule is that when you go in as a writer to, to meet on a story or to pitch a story, if you ask them how many other writers you're competing with, they have to tell you. They can't lie to you or they're in, uh, in violation of the, of the guild agreement. Now, we tried, because uh, I've been the co-chair of the negotiating committee for the guild the last three negotiations with the AMPTP, we tried to force a rule into the minimum base agreement requiring them to tell you without asking, um, which we jokingly called the don't ask, tell rule. And... Um, and they wouldn't agree to it. But what they did agree to was if a writer comes in or the writer's representatives on the phone say, how many other writers are coming in to pitch on this, the studios have to give you an accurate and honest answer. So you can gauge, based on that, how much sweat equity you want to put into a given idea. Mm -hmm. Do you think if you had been told that 30 other writers were going in on Captain Phillips, that would have stopped you from... No, absolutely not. Yeah, I get that sense. <laughs> <laughs> Now, by the way, um, I had the advantage and the good fortune to be walking in there with a career behind me. Sure. So they knew me, and they knew my work, and they knew my reputation for, you know, for working hard and being professional and being collegial. And, and I, I'm an easier bet uh, to make than some other writers who have less experience. And your agents also have a great argument to make about your um, ability to tell true stories yes. in a really interesting, you know, tense way. I think that's true. Um, so we've kept you for a while here. Um, before we finish, I just, um, I asked you if there was a, a scene from um, someone else's work that you might want to talk about a little bit in terms of craft. And oh, sure. you chose a scene from The Godfather, which well, I love. Well, The Godfather is the greatest movie ever made, and is there's right? no real debate about that. <laughs> what about The Godfather Part Two? Uh, I have that number 32 on my top 100. Wow, that's a big chasm. Well, if I told you the movies in between, you'd say I totally agree. <laughs> um, I, I get the sense that a lot of those top 32 are going to be have have been released between 1970 and 1979. <laughs> is that fair? Yes, that 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 decade is well represented, <laughs> but not exclusively. Um, I, I've got Godfather one, I've got uh, Wizard of Oz two, and Casablanca three. Really? Um, and then it goes both above uh, Citizen Kane. Uh, I've got Citizen Kane uh, eleven. Huh. I love Citizen Kane. I, I love do too. Citizen Kane, but I don't love it more than uh, The Graduate or Annie Hall, Ugh, me uh, yeah. or The Apartment, yeah. or Amadeus, or Schindler's List, or uh, All the President's Men. Wow, that's a great list. Um, you know, they're all they all nudge out Citizen Kane. Right. Although I think Citizen Kane's amazing, but there there are no stinkers in my top one hundred. They're yeah. all absolutely unassailable movies. Anyway. All of those movies, though, are so incredibly rewatchable, except I've never seen Schindler's List twice. Are you able to watch oh that God, multiple I've, times? I've watched that movie over and over and over again. It reminds me about the possibility of, of perfection in movie making and, uh, and restraint in movie writing. It's an incredibly restrained movie uh, until... Uh, until Schindler breaks down and does the I could have done more, I could have right. done more, which is not the most unrestrained moment of all time, right. but the movie has certainly earned it by then. Um, so it doesn't play as melodrama. I think that's um, fair. I, I just think it's, it's an extraordinary movie. And of course, what it's about is so complex. And, and I, I, I would argue there's one director in the history of the world that could have made a hit out of that movie, and happily it was the guy who directed it. Did you watch the recent uh, HBO documentary on Spielberg? I haven't yet. I've been working a lot and haven't really had time to watch anything. Anyway, back to The Godfather. Okay. So there are a number of reasons why I think The Godfather is the greatest movie ever made. Uh, it's so beautifully shot, and it's, the score is incredible. The performances are incredible. The directing is just out of this world. There is just every arrow in the quiver is all, they're all conspiring in exactly the right way. But at its core, I believe what makes The Godfather the greatest movie ever made is that you have a lead character, the protagonist, who has a, a conscious desire that is in direct opposition to his subconscious desire. And the tension of that is spectacular. You set it up very early. Um which is Michael Corleone comes to the wedding, and he looks different than everybody else. He's in, you know, his army uniform. And Kay looks different than everyone else. She's in that, you know, uh, the red and white outfit. 
And he tells us a story about Luca Brazzi, and then he says the most important line in the movie, that's my family, Kay, that's not me. In other words, I'm trying not to become my father. But internally, he is dying to become his father. And everything about his behavior tells you that he is really torn about that struggle between turning into his father or turning into this other thing uh, that he doesn't really know. And if you go back and look at every beat of the movie, it is all that story. It is the story of will Michael become the Don and do what his father did, or will he yield to that conscious part of himself that says, none of that's my family, that's not me. And so the idea of crime and loyalty and personal integrity and destiny, all these really big themes are woven into the idea of family. And, you know, very early in the movie, Don Corleone says, a man who doesn't take care of his family cannot be a real man. Um, so, again, that idea of all these things weaving through family is sort of baked into the DNA of the movie. Then you have this scene where it all comes together, this idea of family and crime and destiny and integrity and love. It's all in this one scene between uh, Michael and, and Vito where Vito says to him, you know, I never wanted this for you. I knew Sonny was going to have to deal with it, and Fredo, well, Fredo, but I never wanted this for you, and I wanted you to be the one to pull the strings. You know, Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone, there just wasn't enough time. And Michael says to him, we'll get there, Pop. It's my favorite scene in my favorite movie. And there's a rumor out there that that scene was actually written by Robert Town. I don't know if that's true or not. I actually know Robert Town, so I'm going to ask him. You should. Did he do script doctoring on the on the screenplay? I, didn't, I, know, I know he that. did some work on the screenplay. Oh. And and the rumor was that was his scene. And I, I literally, I'm, you know, I'm going to put down the phone with you, and I'm going to call him, and I'm going to find out. Wow, so um, fun. But it is. But if you want to play it, it is. It is my favorite scene from a movie in which. Every scene is my favorite scene. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to let you go, and uh, we're going to play that clip to take us out. Um, thank you so much for doing this, Billy. This has been great. Clip. Yeah. Okay. Talk soon, and we're going to uh, uh, play The Godfather. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. So, Barzini will move against you first. He'll set up a meeting with someone that you absolutely trust, guaranteeing your safety. And at that meeting, you'll be assassinated. I like to drink wine more than I used to. Anyway, I'm drinking more. It's good for you, Pop. I don't know. Your wife and children, are you happy with them? Very happy. That's good. Hope you don't mind the way I, I keep going over this Passini business. No, not at all. It's an old habit. I spend my life trying not to be careless. Women and children can be careless, but not men. How's your boy? He's good. You know, he looks more like you every day. He's smarter than I am. Three years old, he can read the funny papers. Read the funny papers. Uh, I want you to arrange to have a telephone, man. Check all the calls that go. You're not able I did it already, Pop. Good man. Pop, I took care of that. Oh, that's right. I forgot. What's the matter? What's bothering you? I'll handle it. I told you I can handle it. I'll handle it. I knew that Santana was going to have to go through all this. I'm afraid, though. Well, afraid I was. <laughs> 
And I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refused to be a fool. Dancing on the string held by all those big shots. I don't apologize, that's my life, but I thought that... But when it was your time that... That you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. Governor Corleone. Something. Another pattern of Well. This wasn't enough time, Michael. It wasn't enough time. We'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. Now listen, whoever comes to you with this Marzini meeting, he's the traitor. Don't forget that. Billy Ray, I told you he was amazing, right? It was going to be like a masterclass. Some amazing nuggets in there. The guy is just so smart about writing. Um, and I just got an email from Billy. We're recording this, uh, obviously, after the interview ended. The subject line of the email is Godfather. And the email says, yes, Town wrote that scene. I love that. I love that. Robert Town wrote that scene. Um which is incredibly wild when you put it in context also. So in a 24 month period in the mid seventies, Robert Town wrote some or all of The Godfather, The Last Detail, Parallax View, and Chinatown. That is humiliating. My God, that's amazing. Um, thank you so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy, or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.